Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. All right, welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife, everybody. We are very pleased to have Dr. Thomas M. Scalia here, who is the Honorable Francis X. Kelly, Distinguished Professor in Trauma Surgery at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. He's also the Physician-in-Chief from R. Adams College Shock Trauma Medical Center uh, in Baltimore. Dr. Scalia, welcome so much to Behind the Knife. Thanks. I appreciate being asked to uh, join you guys. So I remember way back when I was in residency, you came to one of our Gary Ranton conferences and had an opportunity to talk to us all about that and just blown away by the number of things you had done even at that stage in your career. And so and when was it's that? pretty impressive. Uh, that was back in the late 90s, sir. So wow. um, that it's been, uh, it's been a bit, but just incredible the things that you've done. But for those who are out there that don't, we'd like to start all of the podcasts with you tell us a little bit more about you as the person and uh, wh- where you're from, where'd you train, how to come to the point where you wound up in Baltimore. Yep. Sure. I grew up in Rochester, New York, uh, a very Italian traditional family, uh, four siblings, three brothers and a sister. Um, very unusual for the 19 19- late 1950s, early 1960s, my father left. And um, so my mom raised all five kids by herself. Uh, we, uh, we've all ended up being uh, successful. Frankly, I, my siblings are all enormously talented, much more than me. I left Rochester to go to the University of Virginia. I did that because even though I'm not a very big guy, I wanted to play college football. (laughs) And uh, UVA at that point was ranked 149th out of 150 Division I schools. I figured that was probably the only place I could get a good education and play. It turned out I was even too small to play there. I really had no idea of what I wanted to do. My mom asked me when I left to, to, to go to UVA, what are you going to do? What do you think you're going to do? And I remember saying, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know what I'm not going to do, and that's medicine. So I kind of meandered through college <laughs> and t- really had no idea. And I met this guy my last year, and um, I said, I'm... He uh, took a course called Abnormal Psychology, which may be a little bit of an oxymoron, I guess, <laughs> and um, I fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. It was really a course in, in experimental psychology, and I wanted to be like this guy. And so I approached him, and he said, yeah, you know, come to graduate school, be in my lab. I... Um, Finished in January, that would be six months late, not six months early. And I um, went home and I'm working in a factory. Now, at the same time, in the fall, I have a friend who says, who applied to medical school and said, I bet you can't get into medical school. And I said, I bet I can. I um, 
took the MCATs, unbelievably hungover, and actually <laughs> did pretty well. I applied to, I don't know, one, two, three, maybe four medical schools because I was going to graduate school. I interviewed at MCV the last day they had interviews. There was a snowstorm, which in Virginia is a you know, life-altering thing, so I got there late. They still let me interview, and I remember coming back, the guy that interviewed me, the dean of admissions, an unbelievably insightful guy. But I'm going to graduate school, so I'm home working in the factory, and I get my letter uh, from UVA rejecting me from graduate school. The guy that had invited me was on sabbatical at, at Michigan, so I called him up. And I said, hey, remember me? He said, oh, yeah. Yeah, things changed. I guess I should have <laughs> called you. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> so I am now working in a factory, and I have no options. And then I got into to MCV. So I carefully considered the two things I from which I had to choose, working in a factory or going to medical school. And medical schools quickly rose to the top, so I went. Picked surgery because it was the only thing that I checked everything off and it was the only thing that was left. So my entire life has been, um, my, certainly my entire professional career has, nothing I've done has been by design. <laughs> it just it just happened. Picking trauma just happened. Picking New York City to start my career just happened. I didn't actually select anything. But it all happened. So nothing actually drew you to trauma specifically? Well, you know, back when I started this, trauma wasn't a specialty. And so I guess everybody was critical, a there were only maybe two surgical critical care fellowships in the country, and nobody even knew they existed. Lord knows I didn't. Uh, I, um, I like taking care of sick people, and um, I didn't have a job. It was May, May 15th, to be exact, of my chief residency year. I was unemployed in six weeks. <laughs> and, and a guy called me that I had, had been one of my professors and said, I hear you're unemployed. Do you know we have a fellowship? And one of the people that we took just quit. You want a job. That's really how I got there. So there's just a bunch of chances, it sounds like, you got to where you're at. Totally. <laughs> yeah, not, not one thing. I never said I'm going to go to medical school. I'm going to do surgery. Even while I was in medical school, I hated surgery. How did you end up at the, at shock trauma eventually then? I know you had a, a few thing. jobs before that. It, the guy that was the dean here, a guy named uh, Dr. Donald Wilson, had been the chair of medicine in um, Brooklyn. So I had known him. And he asked me to come down and give him an opinion about a bunch of things that were going on here, none of which were great. And um, so I, not, I didn't actually apply. And at the end of our conversation, he said, well, why don't you just take the job? Hmm, what a great idea. <laughs> okay, love to. 
So at that time, sir, to get it right, shock trauma did not exist. Oh no, shock trauma has existed since it's had different names. It's really existed since 1973. Hmm. The Maryland trauma system was codified by Marvin Mandel, Governor Mandel, in 1973, uh, created by an executive order. It was created outside of the University of Maryland, outside of Hopkins. It was a state agency that reported directly through the EMS board that the governor created to the governor. Um, and so it existed. We're going to, in, you know, it'll be the, the 50th anniversary in 2023. How it existed and how it functions um, changed. I see. Trauma care in Maryland is the, this is, was, and the first organized trauma system in the United States. There were several trauma centers, but there was no trauma system until this existed. And it started really as a two bedded unit trauma unit, and it's obvious it's now 160 beds. It got a little bigger. The um, hospital grew, and in 1989 opened the new building, which is, of course, now the old building. And that, and then it was, uh, you know, 100 beds or so. Six ORs. We added the next tower uh, three or four years ago, three years ago, I think. So it sounds so like it you've, has incrementally evolved. Yes, sir. It sounds like you've evolved quite a bit. And we'd actually love to ask, what in particular makes the trauma system at Shock unique from all the other systems that are now out there in the United States? Yeah, the, the Shock Trauma Center is the only freestanding trauma hospital in the United States. It is a building that is dedicated now always to injury and now to critical illness. There is no mission creep. We have nine trauma operating rooms. So we may bump each other, but we don't get bumped by cardiac surgery or a <laughs> transplant or anything else. No orthopedics. Um, we have dedicated trauma operating rooms. We have a dedicated trauma resuscitation unit. We have 13 bays, not in the emergency department. This is freestanding. The trauma patients come directly to, to, to the shock trauma center. They don't go to the University of Maryland emergency department. Dedicated trauma um, recovery room, dedicated trauma ICUs, dedicated trauma everything. And so the nurses only do trauma. The physicians, for the most part, do trauma or emergency care. And so it is the only place where this is how we make a living. There are you know, trauma centers, but they, are, um, they exist in hospitals. You know, go around, go down the street to Hopkins, go to UVA, go to any of those other places. There are trauma services and a um, trauma center that is not a physical spot. It's a virtual center that are located in academic medical centers. 
this is different. Do you feel that that's the way trauma care is going? You think if, uh, you know, these high volume centers across the country, that this is a system that should be in place for all these places? Yeah, everybody would like to be us, but nobody's <laughs> going to be able to be. Cause it, and, and we couldn't be us if we didn't already exist. Mm-hmm. The ability, the politics and the finances to set this up in 2017, incredibly challenging oh, and probably, frankly, not possible. But here, it's the way it's always been. It's been like this for 50 years. And so everybody believes in it. Everybody accepts it. This is the only place that I know of the population pays to take to to support the trauma system. $13 of everybody's vehicular registration fee goes into trauma care. Well, you know, Dr. Scaly, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, you know, I was just doing a little bit of research and stuff that you're interested in. And I I came across an article in the Washington Post just recently. It was published in July on the violence intervention program. I found that idea very intriguing, actually. Uh, you gave yep. a, a very interesting story right off the bat, like how many uh, how many parents do we need to tell that their children have been, have been killed? And mm-hmm. uh, he told a story about a story of brothers that were killed in two separate shootings a few years apart. Um, and uh, you've met that mother, unfortunately, twice now. Uh, yep. Can you explain to us a little bit what's the initiative for the violence intervention program? What, what's sure. its goal? Because of our location, violence has always been part of who it is we are, and Baltimore has sadly been among the more violent cities in the country, particularly recently. We believed that we could prevent recurrent violence and created the program, which is really a support program to give people an alternative. There aren't, I don't know any young kid that, that, you know, if you ask some kid at six years old or seven years old or 10 years old, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? They want to be an astronaut. They want to be a movie star. They want to play center field for the baseball team. But I don't know anybody that says, I want to be a drug addict and I want to kill people. (laughs) And so this is we believe believed and continue to believe that that these environmental factors are modifiable and if you give people an alternative to recurrent violence not not everybody but a number of people will pick the alternative and not the violence and we and the program is created to provide that alternative and, you know, there's a lot of barriers to getting this set up, I imagine, uh, funding issues. And, like, why is this difficult to get set up? Because nobody, not nobody, few people see these victims of recurrent violence as victims. If you don't live in the city, you go, A, not my problem, and B, why can't they just not do that and go out and get a job and it's not that simple Uh, particularly if you got brought up in in the environment where you have poor role particularly the men have very poor role models many of them their brothers their friends are 
you know, in, in the life, the number of people that graduate from high school, pretty small. The number of people that go to college, tiny. You know, their way out is perhaps not the best, not the best choice, and violence is often a part of that life. Well, Doctor Scaly, how do we get this to work? Like, how do we how do we make it work? How does it how well, does it get started? I mean, we demonstrated that it can work. Mm-hmm. Now it needs money to work, and. The the frustrating thing here is getting these things funded, unbelievably difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, how much does it cost to incarcerate somebody for a year? How much, you know, what is the, the lost cause um, to society of a 20-year-old kid who's disabled and will never work? A gunshot wound to the head and... You know, bad brain injury or a paraplegic or a quadriplegic. It'd be much cheaper to prevent this than it is to treat it. Yeah, I truly do these do see this as a problem for our generation to try to attain. Mm-hmm. And, and I commend you for all your effort that you've put into uh, feed into this violence intervention program. Um, at this point, we'd like to pivot. We've talked a lot about the trauma system. We've talked about violence at the societal level. I'd like to pivot and bring this back to um, surgery. Now, the direction surgery is taken, we see a lot more minimally invasive surgery. We see a lot more non-operative management of trauma. And mm-hmm. in this current era, we have a lot of residents being brought up without maximally invasive surgery experience. Um, mm. Could you regale us in a tale a or two? Yeah, could you regale us in a tale or two of your most maximally invasive surgery, and what was that like? Well, you know, there are a zillion. Um, <laughs> we just did. Um, no, let's see. What's today? Sunday. Uh, less than a week ago, we had a guy come in. You know, speaking of recurrent violence, that had had a clamshell thoracotomy. Um, 10 years ago for a stab wound that came in with another stab wound to the chest and an injury to his left ventricle. Getting back into his chest, getting his heart off, which was stuck to his, his anterior chest wall, getting that mobilized, opening the pericardium, and getting his ventricle fixed... That was a pretty complicated thing. That was six days ago. Um, Tuesday, I was referred a soldier from San Antonio that has had a zillion operations and ended up with uh, many enterocutaneous fistulae in his small bowel and his colon that had herniated through a fascial defect in his back. So his small bowel and colon was sitting in a bag that was back by his spine. And we got him. We had to go back in and take everything down and reduce everything back in and then repair it and then repair his 
the defect in his back, that took about 10 hours. But, <laughs> knock on wood, he's continuing. He's done well, and so far is continuing to do well. My fingers are crossed. <laughs> we pretty commonly see, um, you know, we have been big believers in um, harnessing technology to help us. And, and so we use a significant amount of extracorporeal techniques, um, ECMO, for um, a, a host of indications. We had uh, recently had a young man that went home Saturday night and fell down the stairs, laid outside and didn't um, was not discovered until he didn't go to work on Monday. And so Monday night, after he'd been exposed to the elements for Sunday, 48 hours, somebody found him outside on the at the bottom of the stairs and called 911, and they flew him in. He had a cardiac arrest on the heliport, and we brought him down. That kid got 90 minutes of CPR, and we crashed him onto ECMO to warm him while he w we were doing CPR. 90 minutes later, he had ventricular fibrillation. I shocked him once. He came back, developed a perfusing rhythm, uh, woke up and is um, wide awake, went back to work as an engineer. <laughs> I wish all of them were that easy, huh? <laughs> Uh, well, I didn't. I didn't tell you about the failures. I'm going to tell you uh, about the true. good things. That's true. That's true. You got to talk about the successes. Well, I think as we're going down this road here with uh, talking about these interesting cases, I think I have a few things I want to bring up to you, uh, and sure. I, that I, I think we always have a, a part of our podcast called the tips and tricks section, where we we really learn how you would do something, and something sure. we, we haven't discussed on the uh, on the podcast at all. Actually, is um, retrocaval IVC injuries something that every yep. surgeon uh, maybe maybe inexperienced surgeons may uh, fear for the life of them. Um, how would you, if you get into a belly penetrating abdominal trauma or even I guess blunt abdominal trauma and you just see blood and blood welling up behind the liver? What would you be your first step? How would you approach this case? I'd call somebody else, tell them to come. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that that's a, an incredibly difficult. Um, set of circumstances, there's not a great way to do it. The first, I mean, you have to expose it. And one of the things that um, no, we don't do a lot of big open liver surgery anymore. And, and so knowing how to do that, that is, unfortunately, it's the old men and a few old women, but mm -hmm that are around that have done it a bunch of times that really are are slick at it. So you have to take all the ligaments down and really get down, uh, take the falciform down all the way to the cava so you can see. Mm -hmm. if, you can ex if you can see the area of the injury, we wrote a, we, Sharon Henry was the first author, wrote a paper on using intestinal allos clamps to control venous injuries. I find them very, very helpful, and I think that's the perfect place for it. If you can see the injury and you can control it, one of the problems with just putting clamps, of course, is that 
yeah, two thirds, three quarters of the of the venous return comes from up the inferior vena cava. If you just clamp, if you occlude the the cava in a hypovolemic patient, they just arrest, and then it's obviously done. Right. The last trick that we used, I just just I did this, I don't know, a few months ago. With exactly this, it was a gunshot wound that took the right hepatic vein off the cava, so they were both bleeding. Wow. It was a mess. Is to use a bypass, is to use liver bypass. So you put a catheter, a big cannula, up the IVC and another cannula down the SVC into the right atrium if, if possible, and you put them on bypass, and so the volume in the cava goes way, way, way down, mm. and the liver shrinks. That makes things much more malleable, and that's what we did with this case. Uh, Dr. Stein came in and um, put the patient on bypass while we were holding pressure. With the liver decompressed, the exposure was much, much easier, and we were able then to repair it. Mm. So one size doesn't fit all. You have to, you have to keep your wits about you and use all of your all of your toys, and uh, and uh, consultants. Yes, sir. You had mentioned the old men and women, the one was the ones with wisdom and experience who are able to do this in a slick fashion. Uh, for those of us who have less experience, um, what are the tips and tricks we can use to get that degree of exposure you had mentioned, apart from? You know, creative well, measures think, like bypass. I think you practice. One thing I think that we do as a, as a specialty, as a medical society, we do badly is we don't learn from each other. So, I, you know, if, if you don't know how to do those things, go scrub with the liver guys. That's a good point. They do this all the time. This is what they do for a living. So go, you know, go scrub with the transplant guys, and and you'll see the anatomy. You don't have to sew the liver in. That's not why you're there. You're there to learn your way around. I think the other thing that is um, incredibly important, particularly for young young people, is that they, if you wait until the patient is almost dead to call for help, you might just well not bother because it's too late. If you need a hand, you should ask for that help early. And it's these bad liver injuries are are ones where um, you know, there's no shame in asking an experienced colleague to come give you a hand. But you have to do it early. If you don't do it early, then it's too late. Then nobody can help you. Well, speaking of the severe liver injuries, you know, what is your method of controlling? I mean, obviously the you know manual compression. Um, what if you get in there as a shattered liver? What is your what is your take on this? How do you how do you deal with something like this? I um, try to get as much vascular control as I can. And then I w am likely to do a hepatic resection. So either probably a non-anatomic hepatic resection, but I will take the damaged liver out. Now, 
that's easier for me 35 years into my career mm-hmm. than it is for somebody 35 weeks or 35 months into their career. But if you ask me how I do it, that's how I do it. And you, are you stapling or are you, uh, you know? Yeah, you can use the universal staplers. They're very um, handy. Uh, but you can, you know, you can finger fracture, too, if mm-hmm. that's what you need to do. Okay. And then, you don't need the fancy staplers. Staplers make it quicker, no question. But you don't have to have them. And then what are your, if you get in there and there's a, a shot or liver in, you know, maybe the patient's not doing so great on the table right now. And uh, uh, what, what are you, would you do this resection now or would you wait a little bit and come back later? And uh, back I, think, I think if you need to do the resection because that's the only way to stop the bleeding, uh-huh. then you do the resection. If you can temporize, and even if you infarct the liver, come back later to do the resection, I think that's perfectly fine. And so this is the perfect play the, you know, for damage control. And whether you do damage control by surgery or surgery and then some catheter techniques, all that is fine. There's no right and wrong uh, thing. You, you want to keep your all of your options very much in the front of your mind and then use them in ways that that uh, make you successful. There's not a cookbook here, um, but if you forget that, you know, if you need catheter help, you need to also call for that early. And then maybe walk us through, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of people ranging from medical students to experienced surgeons like yourself that listen to this podcast. Walk us through your finger fracture technique, and how do you deal with the bleeding as you come to it? Uh, what, what even, what specific yeah, what sutures are you using? Yeah, what I do is I usually take the bovi. I set it at a very high number. I decide where I'm going to go, and I score the liver capsule with the cautery. Then I either, with my fingers, or I take the, the butt handle of a scalpel, and what you want to do is divide the liver parenchyma so that all that's left are the biliary radicals and the blood vessels. So you, it's, um, you tease the liver parenchyma off of the, off of the blood vessels, and then you clamp them, tie them, clip them, however you want to occlude them uh, as you go through. Now, you know, in the, the more centrally you get, in the the middle of the liver, the bigger the blood vessels, right? And so those are going to require clamps and sutures. And in the back, the hepatic vein's a big thing, so you need to, you can't just cut through that or put a clip on it. That Mm -hmm. also requires um, a, uh, something that's more like a suture in order to occlude it. If you really need to haul, you know, you need to get this done fast. It sounds crazy, but it's, it actually works. If you take your hands and you go medial to the area of injury and really squeeze, it's like doing a Pringle in the middle of the liver. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. You get your hands around and you just push hard. One of the problems, of course, with 
the liver is that the blood supply goes through the intact liver and then it bleeds from both sides of the injured liver. Am I making, am I making mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you just push on the inflow side, you can just take the damaged liver out. Now there's only one side that can bleed because the other side's gone. And you can see it a lot better. So you can then, it's easy to find the hepatic vein. That's the big thing in the back. And you can find the the big branches of the portal vein and the hepatic artery. Those are the things in the middle. So you, you can actually see them, and you put a bunch of sutures in, still pushing. And then as you relax, who's ever holding pressure begins to relax the pressure. The, the slightly bigger ones will bleed, and then you put a stitch in them, and you can slowly... Um, let the pressure off. There's actually a clamp that nobody owns anymore called the limb clamp that actually does that. It looks like this big jaws, and it compresses the liver. So you just put that on and get rid of the injured liver and then slowly ratchet it up, and you'll be able to see the blood vessels and to ligate them. Well, essentially replacing it. It takes a certain amount of... uh, you have to be pretty confident to do that. But. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking right now as I'm talk, talking to you. So that kind of replaces the junior resident who's supposed to be holding the pressure on the on the liver, I guess, right? While you're doing yes. all this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think that's a, a really good explanation. What kind of sutures are you using to ligate everything? Just more I usually use, I, I don't actually know. I grew up at Kings County Hospital. Mm-hmm. So whatever we, they had. We were so poor, we, <laughs> you, you use what you got, what somebody handed you. Okay. I'm still to the point. I still don't know what the needles are. See, do you want it on an RBV or I don't care. Give me a, on the bigger, the little bigger needle. That's all I always say. Because I actually don't know what the needles are. And I don't think it matters what you use. I usually use 2-O-Vicro on the liver because it, it comes on the needle I like. It's a big semi-circle needle. I have no idea of what the needle type is, but since I do a ton of surgery, the nurses and the techs upstairs all know exactly what I say. Give me a 2 vicro. They just say the big needle or the small needle, and they know what, what it is that I'd like. Mm. Mm, yes, sir. Uh, on the point of confidence, it seems that you know confidence tracks with competence, and you've accrued a lot more experience than we have, sir. Uh, on that point, at this point in your career, are there still any injuries in particular that either raise your sphincter tone or raise your blood pressure when you're in the operating room? Yeah, you know, I think any, any a, a supraceliac aortic injury, that's a bad injury. An SMV injury, that's a bad injury. A retrohepatic cable injury, that's a bad injury. Uh, venous injury deep in the pelvis, it's a bad injury. But I think that... Um, while you may uh, know that this is a, a, a terrible injury and go, boy, I hope we can fix it, it is incredibly important for the operating surgeon, the person who's the captain of the ship, to um, A, not lose composure, 
You know, I I think when things are really in trouble, that is the time when you can't yell. Can't yell. You know, they don't have the suture you want. If you yell at them, that means that they will become anxious because most people don't perceive being yelled at as, as a good time <laughs> and would prefer to not have it happen again. So now they're terribly anxiety-ridden and much more likely to make a mistake. I was doing a case not that long ago, and I don't know, the resident, the fellow, the somebody, cut a big hole, and you know, we're moving along, and clamps slipped off the cava, and it's hosing everywhere. I'm covered in blood. I stick my finger on the hole. And the poor resident or fellow, whoever was, is terrified. They're just, you know, they're frozen. I've got my finger on the hole, and I look at them, and I say, you know, that's too bad. <laughs> kind of wish that hadn't happened. What do you think we ought to do to fix this? Really in those, in that tone. Because I need, you know, the two of us need to fix this. Mm-hmm. And I need that person in the game, not going, oh, God, he's going to fire me when we get done. And the same is true with the nurses. And so any of those terrible injuries, you have to exude confidence and you have to be calm and you have to say thank you afterwards, even if things don't go well, because people are there trying to help you do this and and it's incredibly important i think to recognize that and to um you know make them part of the team well that was that's actually very inspiring i hope one day we can actually scrub together sitting together sir <laughs> but uh <laughs> i hope i won't put a hole in the ivc though but um moving on to our next part of our our podcast uh, is the last part, actually. It's called The Final Five. This is, you know, one part of the podcast that we you kind of let the listeners out there to really uh, get an idea who you are outside of the operating room, outside mm-hmm. of the hospital. Um, so uh, starting off with our first question is, uh, if you're listening, or do you listen to music in the OR? And if so, what's on your iPod or what are you playing? Yeah, I, uh, I'm an old man. I've been at this. I'm 66 years old. And I am still uh, a fan of uh, what many people would call white boy rock and roll. And so it's the Beatles, it's the Stones, it's the yeah. Grateful Dead. Um, I'll listen to anything. But if I, if I get to pick, and I almost never do get to pick, I'll put on um, any of those things and just uh, turn the volume up high. That's great. Uh, next question what hobbies, talents, or interests do you have outside of the OR? I have no talents, but I do have some hobbies. I think you're lying. Um, love to, uh, I exercise at least six days a week, seven if I'm lucky. Um, ride a bike. You know, I've seen too many people get hurt, so I try, <laughs> I try to make sure I'm not going to be one of the casualties. Yeah, I don't want to come to your um, own. Your... Yeah. I uh, you know, lift weights. I do. I, I try to do an hour of um, fairly high intensity exercise a day. Have a 
I live in, in the city, but I'm very lucky. I have a roof deck, and I grow. I have the best tomatoes this year that anybody has ever grown. <laughs> they are, and, and uh, there must be, we must get five, six a day off the roof. Oh, wow. Okay. It, so I'm going to, I've got a big, I'm going to have to make a big pot of tomato sauce and freeze it here one day soon. I cook a fair bit, love to cook. Just, uh, I auction off dinner at my house, I don't know, six or eight times a year. Mm-hmm. To, for charity, just did one uh, dinner for twenty. Oh wow! At the house. That's excellent. That's actually and a lot of work, I imagine. It's a lot of work, <laughs> but had uh, had uh, much of it came from the roof. Had uh, got some fresh mozzarella and tomatoes from the roof. Then second course was. Uh, rigatoni with pesto that I made from basil on the roof. Then grilled the butterfly like a lamb that I marinated in spices from the roof. So I, I really like, and I think one of the reasons that, I think a lot of surgeons like to cook, and I think that one of the reasons that's true is that you you can't rush it. Mm-hmm. You know, I always tell people, if it says cook it at 350 for two hours, if you cook it at 700 for one hour, it's not the same. I guess kind of similar to and, surgery. Yeah, you have to slow down. You can't go faster, faster, faster. You have to do it uh, at the required pace. And what a great opportunity to open a good bottle of Italian red, have a couple of glasses of wine while you're cooking. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Well, next question, is there a favorite trip or vacation that you've taken recently? Recently. Just went to Australia. Um, Long trip, Sydney, unbelievable town. Unbelievable town. Mm. But my favorite place to go um, of anywhere in the world is Italy. And and I'll go almost anywhere in Italy. And um, the north, the middle... South love the South. Mm. Love the North. Our fourth question, what would you be doing if not medicine? Yeah, that's a good question. Not really good at anything other than medicine. Hopefully I'm at least good at medicine. Um, if I had any talent and... Um, I, and I could pick. I'd be an artist of some variety. All of my all of my siblings are artists, musicians, painters, sculptors, writers. And I have um, you know the ability to create, to make something out of nothing. I think is um, it's the best. Okay. And our last question is, if you could go back in time and see yourself on your first day of internship, what advice would you give yourself? Don't take yourself so goddamn seriously. (laughs) (laughs) That's always good advice. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think that um, young surgeons, young physicians, um, stuff's not that hard. Really, 
you listen to the patients. You know, put the this wasn't true for me, but it's true for you guys. Put the computer away. Walk in the room, sit down, listen to the patient. They will tell you the answer. Go in and listen to the patient. And we make these, and each generation does it in their own way. We make it harder than we need to make it. Mm-hmm. Well, that is excellent advice. Uh, actually, throughout this entire podcast, there's a lot of good, uh, good advice throughout it. Uh, Dr. Scalia, we really appreciate you sitting down with us this afternoon and uh, oh, happy giving us it. a rundown. I know you're a very busy man, and uh, all these things that we talked about are just excellent. So, all uh, right. I hope that's kind of what you were looking for. Yeah, absolutely, sir. It sounds great. Um, uh, once again, yeah, we'd love to have you back on in the future. And um, Anytime. Yeah, great. <laughs> you uh, will learn like everybody around here learns. Uh, there are There is only one way that you make that happen, and it's two words. Call Stevie. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, sir, you have a great afternoon, and uh, once again, thank you. All right, bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Until next time, dominate the day.